Welcome to the City Hill podcast. We really hope you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about City Hill, please visit our website, cityhill.london. So today we're doing the second part of our series, In Jesus' Name. So if you want to have a look at Matthew chapter 18, and we are going to get stuck in. So Matthew chapter 18 all starts off with, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like the child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened round his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptation to sin, for it is necessary that temptation come, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off right away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet in front of eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven for one of these little ones to perish." If your brother sins against you and sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound on earth, whatever you loosen on earth shall be loosed in heaven again I say to you if two or three are gathered on earth ask they will it will be done for them by my father in heaven for where two or three are gathered together in my name there I am among them so this discussion has been taking place for a little while about who is the greatest in 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 the kingdom who is the greatest in this new kingdom Jesus has been talking about the disciples want to know and they've been asking him these questions he shifts straight away from the greatest discussion to a, a conversation about sin and about the sheep and about the value of the sheep, the importance of the sheep, and about how you sort issues out of one another. So it starts off with a conversation about who's the greatest, and then he brings a small child out as the greatest, but then he lets them know in no uncertain terms how much the sheep mean to him and about not sinning and hurting someone to cause them to go astray. And if they do, he paints this picture of a shepherd losing one of a hundred sheep, leaving all the sheep behind, going after that sheep, And then we end with this crazy kind of passage where he talks about asking and it will be done for them uh, by my Father in heaven. And and then he says, for where there are two or three gathered in my name, there I am among them. So we're talking about this series in Jesus' name. Last week we talked about prayer and that was a whole lot of stuff that maybe we didn't expect. This week is a bizarre week. I mean, it is bizarre. So when we talk about this passage and we compare it to what gets said in like prayer meetings, it's a totally different kettle of fish. So I've been in, I don't know about you, I've been in so many home groups, cell groups, any groups, prayer groups, Bible study groups, and whenever someone prays, there's always this prayer, and they go like, when two or three are gathered together in your name, 
you are here in the mints. That, that's what everyone says every single time. And everyone says it all the time. And it's right here, right now. Now, in this passage, if you're going to take it in that context and think about what they're actually saying, like we go in there and we're like, yes, Lord. Actually, if someone brings that up, because of the reference and what the whole thing is about, really what you've got is like shots fired. As soon How we hear it is we hear a different thing completely. But what this is really associated to, how we really should hear it when someone says that, is like, oh, it's about to go down. There is beef in this cell group. There is beef. Someone has upset someone here. They have fallen out and it is about to go down. They're about to get two or three gathered together and they're going to work this out in front of God Almighty because someone has caused some problems. Do you see that's what it's about? So it's about the problems. It's about division. It's about one being separated and God shares his story of being desperate to bring the person who's been rejected and pushed away and bring them back into the fold. That's what he's talking about. And then he's talking about, listen, if you can go one-to-one to that person and it gets sorted, fantastic. You've got your brother back. He calls him brother. So this is a person that's, that there's a separation issue between the two where one is now separate from the fold and he says, you've got your brother back. Wow, that's huge. So there's been a division. You go one-to-one. But then if that doesn't work, he goes, then you move to two or three witnesses. This is from the Lord, Deuteronomy. It talks about when there's a big issue, you'd get two or three witnesses, try and sort it out together. If it doesn't happen, then you go to like what would be the way that Israel was set up. Was It was all set up around their faith. Their legal system was set up around their faith. So you'd be in a group together and you would work it out as a collective. So when he talks about the church, that is the Greek word ecclesia, which the Jewish people use to describe their small group gatherings of the faith and not the people of God in its entirety. So he would say, hey, they're not listening to you. It hasn't worked out. Two or three witnesses hasn't worked out. Then you bring it for the church. And then he goes, if that doesn't work out, well, he goes, well, then you know what? Let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So if you had a beef with a tax collector or with a Gentile, you'd have to go through the the standard legal system of, of empire, of the Roman Empire. You'd have to follow things through that way. I want to pause for a second and think about that for one second because there's all this stuff going on. And then he says, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I want to talk about something that he's not even talking about, but it's something that is helpful. I find so often in life, there are certain people you get in your life that cause you constant Aggie. Constant, constant Aggie. And what I do in my head is I don't call them a Gentile or a tax collector because they're not. That would be ridiculous. This thousands of years later is not relatable. But I flag them, just like I do my emails. I flag things. And I know that person is that person. So then the next time they say something that would normally send me through the roof, I'm not going through the roof anymore because I've flagged them. Oh, they're a Gentile. They're, of course they're going to say that. Of course they're going to send for me and cuss me out. That's what they did the last time. We're in the same setting. They've done it again. I don't freak out anymore because I know that's, that's who they are. And I'm not conditioning them. I'm not sticking a label on them that they're forever going to be that to me because they're flagged. And just like I do with my emails, I remove the flag when I've dealt with what needs to be dealt with in that email and, and things have happened. But I keep it there mentally because what I find is I found so many people go into a situation, something happens, and then like, like insanity, they walk back in the situation. It happens again and again and again. And they're acting like they never saw it coming. And they're talking about the situation like they can't understand it. I can't believe it. Can you believe they said this? No, I can't believe they said that. That was so bang out of order. But they've done this before, haven't they? You've got to flag it. You've got to flag it. And sometimes the easiest thing is you can't always get resolution. But when you know you can't get resolution with a person, they're not going to change. You're not going to change. Just flag them. That's what they are. I know what they are. I can still be around them. And when they do that, I can totally see that coming. So who is the greatest? This is a discussion. The greatest are those who put aside themselves with the view for the same mission of Jesus because it's all about in his name and that's how he ends it. 
gather together in my name, I'm there in the midst. So people who pursue reconciliation, redemption, and restoration are in his name, right? So when you fall out with someone, I'm not saying like, please hear what I'm saying and don't hear what I'm not saying. So I'm gonna have to justify a lot of things I say only because sometimes in church when we say this, we keep really toxic relationships going because of conversations like this and we keep them there. You don't have to keep them there. You don't have to keep people like as, as, as close to you. You don't always have to have people who are on your fringes, but sometimes there are people in our lives that are so, so unbelievably important to us and we let them go over next to nothing. And sometimes we fall out and, and we let go of things. But actually, if we're gonna be God's people, if we wanna be in his name, then we have to be people that seek restoration, redemption, and reconciliation. They're the three R's that are so unbelievably associated with Jesus. So after this passage in Matthew 18, we then see this conversation doesn't end. It's not like the disciples are like, oh great Jesus, thank you so much for that answer. That makes total sense to us. They carry on being um, pagan roadmen and not understanding what he's talking about. So one of them is obviously chatting to their mum, mumsy about this. And so mum comes along and she goes, uh, listen Jesus, like, I've got two boys, I think they're fantastic. I think they'd be great in your kingdom. Can they have the left seat and the right seat? Can they be the, at the top table in your kingdom? Like the, the, the powers that be at special gatherings and stuff, they would have someone sit on the left-hand side, the right-hand side. The person who sat on the left was the most important. The person who sat on the right was the second most important. And so when she's asking about this, she's asking about something pretty big. Jesus ends up exploring the conversation further, chatting with them and talking about, hey, can you take what, can you drink from the cup that I'm gonna drink knowing that he's gonna die? And they're saying that they can. And then at the end of it all, he goes, um, I'm afraid um, it's not my seats to give away. I'm not the person in charge of who's gonna be that. The father will, will, will do that. And then he ends, because this is in chapter 20 now of Matthew's gospel, it says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Not should be, not there are times, must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus lays it out, I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. The conversation carries on again in Matthew 23. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now this whole conversation doesn't go away. And this whole conversation carries on. And you see, here's the thing. When you converse about something long enough, when you build ideas and values long enough, and interact with people about a topic long enough, it's not just something you talk about, it's not just something you think about, it's something that comes out in your actions, 100%. People always say about, it doesn't matter what you watch, what you listen to, rubbish. Totally matters what you watch, totally matters what you listen to. 110%, 110%. If you spend a lot of your time binging on any one particular topic or opinion, it's gonna come out of you, just like your food will. It's gonna come out of you. And it'll either smell like roses, or it won't. But whatever you're taking in, it's coming out. And it's gonna come out in your actions, it's gonna come out in your words and your deeds. So the disciples this whole time have been scrambling around who wants to be the greatest, clamoring for it. He's put it in no uncertain terms that it's the opposite. He gives them hint after hint. He says, you gotta be the younger. It's not about being the older, it's about being the younger. It's about serving. Um, it's the least of these. Gotta be like a child, gotta be a servant. He even compares it to being a slave. He, and when we say slave in the New Testament, I just wanna highlight one thing. It's nothing similar to the transatlantic slave trade. It's not the complete ownership and degradation of someone. It compares more to today's employment system and being on the lower end of the employment scale. It's not 
the same thing. So when we say that, that what we're talking about is a completely different thing to what happened then. And it's important we remember that because otherwise we hear things Jesus say and we compare it to a culture and a time that has never existed. And those circumstances and settings do not exist in what we're talking about in the New Testament. It's low-level base employment. And so he says, these are the things you need to be like. And so what happens is they get to the Last Supper. Now, this is Passover, and this is the first time they're going to have like a formal meal together. So all the other times they're sitting, they're just eating and they're just together, and it doesn't really matter too much. This is such a formal, key, iconic Jewish moment that when they all come together and they meet in this upper room to eat, this is a big deal. And all the days leading up to this, all they've been talking about constantly in the topic of conversation, they keep bringing up is, who is the greatest? And so what happens is they come into this upper room and the way that the tables are laid out, it's not like out there where it's a long straight table. It's not like this with separate little tables. What it is, the table is like a U shape. It's like a, it's like a U. And what happens is you have on one corner of the, the top of the U, you have three key seats on the side, which the first one on the end is the second most important seat. The most important seat is the one next to it. Then the other side of that, which is the right-hand side, is the third most important seat. And so they would come in and they would file out around this U-shaped table. And on the opposite side where Claude would be, say there was a U-shaped table, Claude right now would be in the absolute worst seat in the house. So um, Katrina technically would be, probably be in the best seat because the way the U is, although there's, there's gaps either side, so no one's actually taken the other key seats. Um, so Claude would be in the worst seat in the house. So what happens, they've been talking about this whole servanthood thing, they've been talking about the least of these, they've been talking about all this kind of stuff, that's a topic of conversation, that's all they want to know about, it's all they want to talk about whenever it's their chance to dictate what's being said. So Jesus has other times where he talks about stuff, but when they dictate the topic, that's the topic they raise. They file in around this table, and Jesus is sitting in the best seat in the house. On the left-hand side of Jesus is Judas Iscariot, so he has the second best seat in the house, and then John is on the right, who has the third best seat in the house, and then Peter ends up in the worst seat in the house. And Peter is fuming. He's absolutely fuming. And for you and I, when we read the passage in the text, we don't really see that he's fuming, but for any Jewish person at the time, hearing the text and going through the story, would be like, oh, wow, no way. I, I totally get why this is happening. So they're all sitting there, and there comes this awkward moment where no one has washed anyone's feet. And so you see the seat where Claude is sitting and where Peter was sitting that day is on the very end, and that person is where the, the servant boy would sit. And so as far as Peter's concerned, he's ended up sitting, and like Jesus placed him in the worst seat in the house, and he's on the inner circle of the 12. So the 12, you had the three that were close to Jesus that he took everywhere away with him and stuff. And so Peter's left fuming sitting there. And so he doesn't wash anyone's feet. I'm not washing anyone's feet. I'm a big boy around here. Big man out here, big you, don't know. So he sits there and refuses to do anything. And so there comes this point where no one's done it, no one's cleaned anyone's feet, but actually Jesus has given Peter in his kingdom the best seat in the house. So Peter is fuming, but he's been picked for the greatest seat. But he isn't embracing Jesus' kingdom values, he's embracing society's values, and he's feeling rejected, and he's refusing to play his role. So many times we refuse to play our role in the church because we have, we say, oh yes, praise the Lord, we can raise our hands, we can do all sorts of kind of stuff, but we don't want to change any of our values, and we don't want to change any of our mindset, and it's all about us still. And we may sing, it's all about you, Jesus, but it's not. It's all about me, and what I want, and what I'm going to get, and that's the end of it. And we sit like Peter does, sulking, refusing to. And so what happens? Jesus gets up in his seat, he washes Judas's feet, he washes John's feet, 
he comes all the way round the table and he comes round to Peter and now Peter is freaking out and he's like, you will not wash my feet. And Jesus says, I'm going to wash your feet, Peter. They're, they're dirty. And Peter goes, no, you're not washing any of me. And they have this exchange. And Peter ends up going, you have to wash the whole of me. And then Jesus says, Peter, it's just your feet that are dirty, mate. And he, he, he's refused. And he said, if you don't let, let me wash your feet, you'll have no part in me. And so Peter ends up letting him wash his feet. And the reason Peter is now even worse, in a worse situation, is because he's completely embarrassed that Jesus has had to wash the donkey poo off everyone's feet around the table and the disgusting nature of their feet. Not like you and I in our shoes, like every now and then I see Christians at conferences doing this feet washing thing and it's like this really deep spiritual moment for me. It's just like, what the heck are you doing? <laughs> like, I don't get it. Like your, your feet are not in the condition of, it's not the same thing. It's, it's really not. And our values of our society, no one ever sits down at dinner waiting for the servant boy to get up from the seat and on a U-shaped table, walk around and wash everyone's feet. So for us, we just, I, yeah, I don't get it. Everyone goes, man, it was so deep. I got so much out of it. I'm just like, great, I did. And I just sat there for 20 minutes thinking, what, what the heck are we doing here right now? Um, but that's just me. You guys may all taken part in that and gone, yes, let's get, that's what we need in church, more feet washing. That'll bring revival. So this story is what's happening, what's taking place. And Peter's lost the plot. He hasn't realized that Jesus has put him in the best seat in the whole house. And so this scenario happens and Peter and Jesus throughout the midst of this build up to this have had conversations talking about who's the greatest. They've had a conversation where Jesus said he's, he's come to die. Peter's saying that's never going to happen. Jesus told him, get behind me, Satan. They've had a rocky relationship. But then it comes to the point where he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he takes the three with him and he takes Peter with him. And they're there and Jesus is led away. He's taken. And we know the story. Jesus is crucified. And Peter denies Jesus three times, just like Jesus said he would. And there is this, there's this breakdown. So why does any of this matter? Well, in the context of what we're talking about, why this matters is because we're talking about the series In Jesus' Name. In this passage, in Matthew 18, it talks about being the greatest. It talks about people going astray. And if we're not people that go after the lost sheep, we're not in Jesus' name. And when people sin against us, if we don't go after them, trying to restore our brother one-to-one or in a group or as a collective, we're not in his name either. And that's a key thing we need to know. And well, the reason we say in his name is because it's who he is, it's what he's about, it's what he does. So with Jesus, what happens is he has Peter in his inner circle, closest to him. Peter denies him three times at his biggest moment of need. A relationship, a pain, a hurt is fractured, is separated, is divided in a way that you and I, probably I would go out on a limb today, have never been betrayed like that moment. Like none of us have been in a situation where a friend has let us down to that kind of a degree, where we are left isolated and alone as we're taken away, tortured, beaten and crucified. Um, exposed in front of everyone in such a brutal, horrific, embarrassing, painful manner. And then to have someone who was closest to you absolutely deny you like that. I mean, when you're talking about if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. What does Jesus do? When Jesus is risen from the dead, the girls meet him in the garden and he says, get the guys together. And he says, tell Peter that I want him there. Because for Peter, what has just happened isn't just a, a difficult thing for Jesus. Peter's whole world has fallen apart. Everything he thought Jesus was, he stopped believing. Everything he thought he was in relationship to Jesus, he stopped believing. Everything about his whole world and everything he was invested in is gone. 
And even at the idea of Jesus being resurrected, his understanding would be, well, hey, who would want me around? But Jesus has said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And he calls Peter to be with him. And when he sees Peter, they have a conversation. And he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me with everything that you are? And Peter says to him, I love you, Lord. You know I love you. And the word he uses means to like blow a kiss, like a demonstration of love. Like it's, it's, not, it's not that deep. It's like, Lord, it's not that deep. You know, you know I feel you, bro, but it's, it's not that deep. Like I display it like, like fist pump. Cool, we're cool, bro. I got you. That's kind of how it is. Then Jesus says, do you love me with all that you are, Peter? And Peter's like, ah, oh, man, you know, yeah. I feel you, bro. We're cool. We're cool. We're cool. And Jesus gives him a job to do. And every time as we go along the process, Jesus gives him more and more of a job. And at the end, he says to him the third time, just like he denied him, Peter, do you love me with all that you are? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you with everything that I am. He replies with the same word. And there is this restoration. There is this reconciliation. And there is this redemption that happens because that is what is in the name of Jesus because Jesus' name means salvation and he brings salvation to Peter. And you see, what we see modeled here when we talk about for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. If you want Jesus to be in our midst or in your midst, you've got to be a person of reconciliation, restoration and redemption. You've got to be, you've got to be. You can't talk about being in his name and not grabbing a hold of this. You can't do it, it's not possible. If you know someone who isn't walking with God because of you and because of a falling out, or if, or if you know someone that's gone astray or someone that you've hurt or you've caused, you don't have to take complete ownership for them. I'm not saying you have to spend the rest of your life being best friends with them, whatever. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying we have to be people who if we wanna know what it means for Jesus' presence to be there and among us, the heartbeat of that is found in this. And when Jesus does that for Peter, he doesn't just do that for Peter, he does that for you, he does that for me, because you and I are absolutely no different than Peter. None of us have been with Jesus and not denied him, none of us. All of us have in our lives, in our actions, with our mouth, with our tongues, with our thoughts, with our hearts. I'm gonna pray for us today and then that'll be it. Father, I thank you, the example that you gave us in your son, so often, Father, we can bring things down to kind of catchphrases and maybe miss the point and the heart behind what's actually happening and what you want to do in our lives. Father, I pray that we would be people that chase after the sheep. I pray we would be people that drop our priorities to bring restoration and reconciliation to the people that are close to us and the people in our lives that cause us pain and cause us hurt. We'll never experience the kind of separation and rejection and issue in relationship like you and Peter had but we do experience that to different extents. I thank you that you modeled to us what it means to go one-to-one and, and gain your brother back. I pray that this week would be a week where we are focused and our eyes are open to gain our brothers and our sisters back, that we would love them and that we would be exactly as you are, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I wanna end on one final point, and that is at City Hill, we kind of have our values to shine, to invite, to give. One of the key things about giving that I absolutely love is it says up there, giving is living, but the next one, your time is a priceless gift that only you can give. When Jesus talked about being the greatest, he talked about serving. He talked about serving. And at Sea Hill, we've got fantastic opportunities where you can serve God and you can give of your time and your energy for his kingdom. Now, when we talk about that, there's 
there's more than just kind of serving here on a Sunday. There's living a life that, that shines. Um, there's living a life that invites people to City Hill, to the party is in eternity, and into our own lives. We are people that invite people. All of those three things are things serving the mission and being in Jesus' name. But there are opportunities to serve here that you can do, that you can help. And if you go to cityhill.london, you can check it out. There's a page, get LinkedIn, and there's like the key opportunities and things that we're looking for right here, right now. We've got these amazing um, City Hill hosting um, aprons, which I think are just so badass. Now, the coolest thing about this, the reason why we've done this particular design, and this is what I wanna share about, because there's opportunities to serve on the hosting team. We really do need extra help and support with that. The reason we've had these done is twofold. Firstly, because we meet in a restaurant slash bar, um, an apron, it just, getting a brand of city, it just makes so much sense. It's just such a, it's such an easy, obvious win. Like, why would we do a polo shirt when we could do that? It's just so much better. So we've done that. The second reason that we've done this is because actually this isn't the exact design or style, but it's the closest thing to what would have been worn by Jesus as he went round and washed and wiped the disciples' feet. It would have been something he girded around his waist and then he washed their feet. Now, the reason we've chosen to have this for the hosting team, for those who serve on a Sunday, and we may get something similar for City Light at some stage, the reason we've done it is those two reasons. It makes sense in our culture and our society, but this is a constant reminder that we come here to serve, that we come here to serve, and we come here not serving one another, we do serve one another, but ultimately to serve God in the long view. So I'd really encourage you to check out cityhill.london. There's different opportunities to serve, and it'd be great for you guys to get involved in that way. That's it for today. Next Sunday, we're wrapping up our series um, in Jesus' name. It'll be the final week. And um, I'm really excited about what's going to be spoken about. We really hope you enjoyed today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about City Hill, please visit our website, cityhill.london.